Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with us this week, we have Jonathan Ward from over in the States. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Sure. So uh, I guess it's slightly redundant, but yes, it's true. My name is Jonathan Ward. (laughs) Uh, I am a sort of self-proclaimed industrial designer. I am very into the details, no matter what the craft I am the founder and CEO of a automotive brand called Icon, based here in Southern California. Awesome. Well, I I don't know when I first came across your cars. It was a while ago. I, I saw a FJ Cruiser or some or something that had been heavily looked at and seen to. How did you sort of get into all this? What's been your journey from this? Let's go. Let's go dive back a little bit. Well, my grandfather was, uh, I think he's the one responsible for putting the car geek genes within me. Um, that was my mom's dad, but my dad was also a fair bit of a car guy. Like he, he used to have an Austin Healey 104 and some other neat stuff when he was younger man. And, um, but my granddad had a tiny uh, car dealership and repair garage in a very small town in an area of eastern U.S. in Virginia called the Chesapeake Bay. And he had that uh, pre-World War II and then during the war, and I think he closed it in the late 60s. I was born in 70, but the property was worthless. He couldn't sell it. So it literally was like he just shut the door and walked around like a half a block away and went home. So I remember growing up as a small kid going to visit him. 
he'd just give me the key and I would get bored and walk over there. And it was literally like, like, like a, a time machine because he had the old snap on calendar with the pinup girl on the wall, yeah. tools still in toolboxes, a couple beat to piss cars still sitting in the garage space. And there was something about the sights and the smells of an old repair garage and the, the shapes and the gleam of the cars and the ephemera that really kind of drew me. And then I've always been drawn to good design. Um, it turns out that I guess a draw for me to start doing automotive as a proper job or as close as I've ever had to a proper job uh, was that it is, it is, and I don't know anyone else who sees it the same way, but to me, like I'm a serial craftsman. So, Grown up doing traditional leather craft, uh, woodworking, uh, sculpture, pre-Raphaelite painting, um, just love learning crafts. The older the craft, mm. the closer to death, the better. But transportation <laughs> design is such an interesting, extroverted combination of so many art forms with the added challenge of them all working cohesively together. And then it actually being something uh, that the, the the man machine interface works, and it's also enjoyable to drive. Hmm. So when I moved to California, I was born in Maryland, then moved to New York City when I was seven. I was there until I was fifteen, and then moved out to California, where I still am. And when I got out here, someone casually mentioned they were getting their driver's license, and they were my age. And I said, "Hold on a sec, back up." So you can get a driver's license in California at 15 and a half. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm staying here. This is just, this will work out just fine. So New York coming from a small town um, was my first big exposure to the hustle and the bustle of the city. And when I read Raymond Lowy's um, autobiography, Never Leave Well Enough Alone, um, I feel very similar to how he described first coming to the city and just being overwhelmed by either the beauty of the architecture or items in store windows. Just the mayhem and the energy kind of expanded uh, my vision. And then California, cars, freedom, hell yeah, I'm getting a license. And I'm like the first car I bought was before I even had a license. At some crap ripoff auction, I bought a 55 uh, Ford Tudor, a four-door sedan that was actually an ex-government agent car. So it was bulletproof, <laughs> no heat, no AC, windows didn't roll down, but I thought it was kind of cool. Took it apart, tinkered, restored it, put it back together, um, and then kind of hated the way it drove. I was in love with the aesthetic, but I never yeah. had much patience for the martyrdom required for vintage mechanical experiences. Hmm. So I had a proper career. I was actually an actor, um, and that was going incredibly well. I had a really nice long career, starting with uh, Broadway shows and Shakespeare in the Park and oh, wow. Beth at the Kennedy Center and on and on and on. But it eventually led to me doing sitcoms and Southern Cal and features and stuff. And, and I, I did love the experience, although I hated getting bored waiting on set. So I was always yeah. sketching or doing something in my trailer. Um, I love the travel experience. I was never good at being a kid and I was given all this responsibility, but with that responsibility came community. So I was on equal footing socially with people five times my age, 
yeah. uh, who gave me a great amount of respect and leeway. So that is the beautiful side. The this sucks realization was privacy. And I had a stalker that got really bad. Um, oh. So I basically transitioned out of being an actor due to that safety concern mm. and took all my interest and experience in different modes of craftsmanship and, and my love for classic cars and started my first automotive brand. I talked my wife into quitting her proper job and um, we just went for it. So we started first TLC, which is TLC4x4.com that based on my love for travel at that point, I'd been to maybe 40, 45 countries and I'd noticed like the harsher the terrain, the more remote the locale, I'm going to piss off some Brits here, but the more people loved their Toyota Land Cruiser. Yeah. And then people loved their Land Rover until they needed to have a Land Cruiser come pull them out of a ditch. But I, don't, <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to stir anything up or been divisive. It's, it's true, though. Planet. It's true. It happens. <laughs> and, um, so really that, that first brand wasn't really – uh, you know, no intelligence SWOT analysis or business school or anything. I just took all the pennies I could. And I thought that there had to be other people that loved those vehicles as much as I did and who were looking for finer examples. Because at least in the States at that time, they're here, but people are always like, Oh, that's that Toyota Jeep thing, you know? Yeah. They, they, they weren't getting any respect. They were appreciated for their utility at best. And then for the few Americans that actually get their head out of their butt and travel the world and accept and understand and grow and learn from other cultures, they also then had a deeper love for them because, oh, when I was in Africa or when I was in Australia or when I was in the Philippines or whatever. So I simply thought, okay, well, if we gave them the respect they deserve and restored them like people restore Mustangs and Mercedes and more yeah. conventional stuff, that people would dig them. And I got lucky because I was right. And the brand grew very quickly. Uh, it still is doing well today. But then over the years with TLC, kind of got bored. And I wanted to take more of my engineering perspective and have more artistic freedom to like bring in all those different forms of craft that I mentioned. So also my experience with classics, originally it was like dead stock concourse or piss off. I was yeah. very like true traditional down to if they're on the original car, there was just a wisp of primer and no paint on the underside of the body, I would go like many people traditionally do to great lengths to um, recreate those imperfections. But again and again and again, not just those sort of little details. It was like, well, why are we doing that? Because it seems kind of <laughs> stupid. We, we can do better processes now. We can make that better. We can do better fit and finish uh, there's reverse engineering and 3D printing and all these technologies and CAD, computer-aided design that can assist us. Also, the driving experience, carburetors, drum brakes, three on the tree, all of that. I just – I found I would go back to my new car at the time more often than not. But then I'd get kind of pissy because fancy or not, it just lacked that soul that classics can give you. 
So very quickly, I found myself yearning to combine all of them. So, you know, there's street rods and hot rods and pro touring and all these sort of niche fit neatly in categories that people have followed in restoring vehicles. Mm. But I think with a lot of arts, they're just kind of repeating what's done before because it has a name attached to it. And Icon was basically the idea that was starting to keep me up at night, which was, why can't we have the best of both worlds? Why can't we stay true to the vintage aesthetic and design language of bygone eras whilst elevating and even adding in new art forms to expand on that language? And then I really wanted to drive like a contemporary vehicle. I don't want to be ruining friends' driveways every time I show up. I don't want to be dealing with choke cables and crappy brakes and non synchromesh transmissions. So Icon was born out of me being a lunatic and wanting to kind of approach resto mods in a different way to combine all those elements. Yeah. And uh, it actually worked. I was uh, <laughs> thrilled. I mean, when I first started it, Everyone thought I was nuts, uh, from business consultants, dear friends, to uh, experts in the car world, to old-time legends that I had interned with over the years. Um, like, but what? You know, they just didn't get it. So I yeah. was a little nervous. I was really nervous after I built the first prototype because then it was built out of the passion and the vision and this sort of 3D model that – my version of sheep jumping a fence at night would be to dial it in, <laughs> dial it in, refine it, zoom in, tweak it, keep evolving it. And that that's a typical thing for me. Um, but it got to the point that like, okay, I have to create this or I'm going to lose my mind. Like yeah. I just I, – I have to physically see it happen or uh, I'm going to lose it. So that's what happened. When did you start – doing this like the sort of i guess it's like a resto mod i guess that's that's, that's probably what it is it, um, what sort of time period and was there uh, were other people doing anything like that at the same time not really i mean people were doing like and i had owned several of them you know these uh, i think street rods were sort of the oldest similar i don't know you know they put a v8 in the 1930s yeah. car and and have good fun with it and I liked that, but I didn't like that they'd remove all the chrome trim and smoothie it was the trend and put flames and graphics and ugly <laughs> colors and shit all over it. I really was drawn to, say, a 34 Ford because of the beauty of the original design, right? So I wanted to celebrate and evolve that. I just wanted more functionality, really, is what it boiled down to. So mm. I really... No, I mean, of course people had to have been, but when I first had the idea, I was ready to go cut a check and buy it from somebody. Yeah. And I couldn't find who that body was. Like, it didn't seem to exist. Um, now, fortunately, uh, well, yeah, I guess for the most part, fortunately, uh, it's become a, a, an, an incredible um, movement of sorts globally mm. um, with the likes of, you know, Alphanista and Singer and all these companies that have popped up since we started. But yeah, when we started, everyone just thought we were completely batshit <laughs> and we were on our own. Um, 
And I, I was just something that um, I had in my head and literally had to get on physically done um, and then stand back and study and go, okay, is this viable? And yeah. there, there were some, you know, bumps along the road. When I built that first prototype, I was like, went back and added up what it was going to cost. And it was over a hundred grand at the time. And I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> like <laughs> no one's going to pay that. And I actually went and consulted. Um, this is by the way, back to answer your dateline. Um, this is probably 2004, 2005, right around there. Yeah. And um, a dear friend to this day, who's really kind of been my one-man board of directors, casually sort of a great sounding board for me, is uh, a guy from the Schmata industry um, from clothing, ran Old Navy and then J. Crew, uh, genius in his industry, named Mickey Drexler. So I went to Mickey and said, Mickey, I don't know what to do, man. Like, here it is, and I've created it, and I love it, and then there's a bunch of things I want to change and evolve and improve, but it's already this expensive, and it's just nuts. So I don't know what to do. Do do I dumb it down instead of a shipwright-built, bespoke aluminum body? Do I use fiberglass and make fiberglass body instead of – three quarter ton gnarly axles, four wheel disc brakes. Do I just like junkyard source and rebuild? And fortunately Mickey knew me well enough to say, no, don't water it down. Stick to your visions. If you build it, they will come. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, yeah. And, and it pans <laughs> out. And the crazy thing is, is those who have come never pushed me to dumb it down. The customer base has always reinforced my vision and empowered me to get nuttier and nuttier. You know, sometimes they want yeah. stuff that I think superfluous or might uh, define the obsolescence potential of the platform, which to me goes against what I'm trying to do. And that a big part of what we do at Icon is not just sort of a revival of all these different art forms and increasing the, the, the user experience and versatility, but also like industrial arts in England and in the U S right. Or a big part of what our nations became, you know, it was that risk taking, it was that entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. It was that effort to create something that would be the best it could be that would last as long as it could. That really is important to me. You know, of course, then you get into the, depression, therefore, you know, industrial revolution into depression where suddenly quantity was the only business model anyone would pay attention to really not quality. Yeah. Um, and then wall street, of course, screwed that pooch even worse. <laughs> so I'm really happy that we've, we've, uh, that we're in business number one, yeah. because enough lunatics out there, uh, are nuts in the same way we are. I think it's a, it's an amazing thing about the world that we live in now with sort of social media and the internet and all that sort of stuff is you can, you can find these people on the planet that might like your weird, wonderful idea and you only need a small amount of them. Yeah. And there might not amazing. be that many of them. Yeah. It's such a powerful, powerful tool. I mean, keep in mind when I started TLC, I started that with, I was already buying and selling and flipping cruisers as like a side hustle. 
um, out of my house, pissing off all my neighbors. Um, so I had invested in a couple small automotive shops, a body shop and a garage that were really, really skilled craftsmen, but didn't have any business intellect and they're running their mm. businesses into the ground. So like I helped them with their base structure and then leveraged them, uh, to help me when I got started because, um, I opened like a 1200 square foot, you know, tiny little shop and literally just put a post-it note on the door and carried my old like tan brick Motorola cell phone around hoping it would ring. But this was like, this is the mid nineties. So this is like, people are starting to talk about this thing called the intranet, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it was yeah. literally like the fifth vehicle I went to sell. Some guy said, you know, I, I really like it. And it was cheap. I mean, it was, it was under $10,000. You know, and he's like, would you consider a trade? And I'm like, no, like I, I need to like, I need to churn and burn my cash. And he's like, well, have you heard of the internet and these things called <laughs> websites? I'm like, yeah, I've been, been hearing a little bit about that. And uh, he's like, well, I'll build you a website and trade you for the truck. <laughs> so I talked to my partner, my wife, and I'm like, yeah, okay, let's try that out. Game changer, literally game changer. Like, <laughs> Overnight, I the viability of a sub-niche micro-specialist shop that only did one thing, immediately viable. Yeah. And then today, yeah, I mean, with social media for Icon to find an even much larger reach and audience, I'm still blown away daily how many people know our brand exists. Mm. And more importantly, understand, like, what it means which is crazy, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a, the, for them to know it is cool, but for them to know what it stands for, ah, it's just priceless, just priceless. Yeah. And so like, it, it's an in, insane thing. So you're sort of going along, you're picking up different design ideas and ways of doing stuff from different industries as you're sort of going about and then pulling them into these cars that you're building. One, how on earth do you decide that's, that's the line and I should probably sell this now versus like, let's keep going, let's keep developing, let's try some new materials. How on earth do you do that? Um... Well, there's two ways. Obviously, I, I need to respond to what the heck is selling, right? So <laughs> yeah. what, what's touching, what's tapping into that romantic image or cultural vehicle that's important to people that they, they want to see evolved. Um, on the content side, uh, it's kind of a monarchy under the veil of a democracy in that that's just my lunacy and geeking out on, oh, like the tip of this pen is this really cool floating thing inside and <laughs> seems like it's acrylic or it might be sapphire crystal. That would be really neat in a knob on a dash on a car and then geek out deep dive to understand who is the rock star making this <laughs> or can I do it myself? Do I have the tool and intellect bandwidth here to do it or can I find that partner um, that's mostly driven <laughs> by me, but the, the models, you know, we started with singularly one model, the FJ 40 classic land cruiser. Then very quickly, we evolved that into the FJ 43, which was a model that North America never received. It was basically a longer wheelbase version of the short 40. 
then the 45 pickup, which the U.S., oddly enough, only got from 63 to 67, but it had an iconic following here already. Uh, and then customer demand. People were like, I love it, but my wife says I can't do this unless it seats all the kids so she can have <laughs> some peace and quiet on the weekends. Literally, this is a true story. While on the phone in the very early days of Icon, just trying to make a deal, I'm like opening up Photoshop and half-ass <laughs> South Park quality rendering, you know, cutting and sectioning an FJ40 into a four-door six-seater, message it to the guy, his wife's over his shoulder, sees the email come in, yeah, you can get that. So he's like, yeah, that'll work. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's called the FJ44 and no problem. And uh, and we built it for him. And today it's it's probably, yeah, in the FJ, it's definitely the sales leader. And then like, some things were OEMs, like car companies reaching out to us as our reputation got stronger. Um, others were, I mean, most of the brand is kind of childishly, perhaps almost irresponsibly born out of my passion and guided by my passions. Um, so, for example, the Thriftmaster that is based on the 47 to 53 Chevrolet pickups. I love them. Always dug them met my wife because she came over to the house with a friend of hers and I was in the garage restoring one. And I literally was laying in the bed wood under it and had my arms stuck under the beam and was like literally stuck. I heard footsteps coming up the driveway, called out and said, Hey, would you mind coming in here for a sec? Can you pick this thing up so I can get my sorry ass out from under it? <laughs> I crawled out and it was uh, this beautiful girl, and I introduced myself, and uh, it's my wife, Jamie. So mm -hmm. I had, like, a, a strong emotional connection with that vehicle. And my dear friends who are chassis development partners, a company called Art Morrison Enterprises, who are just legends. Um, unfortunately, Craig Morrison, who was, was a dear, dear friend, Art's son, passed away recently from COVID. Um, but at the time, Craig loved that truck as well. He went out and bought one. They didn't have a chassis for one. So he geeked out and designed a chassis. And when he came to visit me, he, he left it with me for a weekend. And I went and drove the piss out of it. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, between the fact that I don't have to handle the non-reoccurring engineering budget, because he was dumb enough to do it on his own, combined with my personal history, he was like, okay, this will be our next production model. But then, like, the Bronco... The Bronco, yes, popular request. Same with Defenders, two most popular requests throughout the years. But I really only added it to the production models because the at the time, the CMO and now the CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, well, Jim and I worked together at Toyota when I designed and developed the oh, first really? three pre-production vehicles that became the FJ Cruiser. So, of course, Ford was already thinking about reintroducing the Bronco. And he said, have you ever thought about doing a uh, Bronco icon? I said, well, funny you should ask. Yes, I have. <laughs> and he's like, well, would you do one? And like, we'll display it at SEMA. And SEMA um, is, is like the big automotive uh, aftermarket bling bling trade show here. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and bling and shit that doesn't work there. I love the show, but if I'm going to, I said, yeah, we'd love to, but if we're going to do it, like, it's going to be engineered. Like it's on, like if I do it, that's going to be a fully capable CAD model 
done, file packs, ready to party. And I'm going to make it a production model at Icon. So we have a long working relationship with Nike and the CEO at Nike at the time, like literally like two months before I'd gone up there to do a keynote. And he had said like almost dismissively in passing, he said, you know, after I toured their, what they call their kitchen, which is like this batshit underground research and development DARPA out there lab where they do <laughs> crazy stuff that people have no clue about. Um, maybe 2% of what they do there is the root of an innovation that makes it to a product. But anyway, he said, you know, we have a lot of turnover in the kitchen because gifted, gifted engineers and fabricators, but a lot of what they do never like comes to light. So we lose them and I'm trying to retain that talent. So if you ever have like a really neat project that you could go from sketch to physical done in under 12 months, reach out, give me a call. I'm like, okay. So seemed interesting <laughs> after seeing like CNCs and tools that like, if you called Haas machining and said, you know, I saw that 30 foot vacuum table, twin <laughs> head, five axis, super speed. And they're like, yeah, you know, they hang up on you. Like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Nike had like a row of them and they were <laughs> under tarps not being used. So when I got that opportunity, first call Nike. So guys, you know, a while back, I don't ever remember you had said, and they're like, yep, we're in. So I ended up with like just absurd resources for my small time status. And we had an absolute masterful team of materials experts and machinists and engineers and modelers involved. And I also invited my friend Camillo Pardo um, from Ford, who had designed, was one of the principals behind the 06 GT40, um, but then left to do fine art. And he had mentioned he was missing the automotive juju. So Camillo and I worked on it. And then Nike really took my stupid ideas and made them viable. And then we show up at the trade show and like Ford went radio silent on me. I said, you know, I need this support. I'm going to need CAD support. I need the new Mustang GT engine. I need electronics aid. I need access to the archives. Yeah, 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 yeah. No problem. Chirp. Where'd they go? Carol Shelby was still alive at the time. Carol snuck me the CAD work I needed. I backdoored <laughs> everything else I needed. I think Ford did send me a free motor. But anyway, up until the day of the show, and this is quick, man. This is like 10 months, Sam. That doesn't um, sound like a long I'm time. in the hotel room looking down as our 18-wheeler is unloading the truck, and like a dozen suits swarm the truck as it's being unloaded. And I'm like, I bet you that's Ford execs. So sure enough, one guy peels off from the crowd, goes for his phone. My phone rings. And he's like, um, Mr. Ward, um, got to tell you, we didn't think this was possible. Um, so like we really had no expectation that you were going to be here or anything. I'm like, well, if you guys had replied to any of my emails, you would have known. Whatever. <laughs> Big corporate. The mouse and the elephant don't often dance well. So anyway, literally like 11th hour, the, the truck's supposed to go on a supplier's booth. And Ford's like, we're moving stuff out of the way and we want it on the center of the Ford booth at the show. And then game on. You know, once that happened, then Amazing. I'm doing interviews with Edsel Ford and they're putting their arms around me like they were our <laughs> partners from day one on it. And then it put us immediately into a backorder status. 
And, you know, now I can hardly buy Broncos to build because they've become so popular. I think in a small part based on our success, I mean, now there's at least a dozen Bronco Restomod specialists that have come out of the woodwork and it's become a whole movement. But mm. it's been so much fun, man. And then if I if it's something too bad shit that I don't see production viability or it's not scalable, not as repeatable, I'll still do it. And for that, I basically created our Skunk Works division, um, <laughs> which is the one-off vehicles we do, we call derelicts and reformers. And those are client-funded, one-and-done, baby. So like high-functional sculptures, but we try and really keep it special for both my team, um, and for the client who funds these ridiculous adventures in that if someone calls up a month later and says, I want one just like that one, can't do it. <laughs> when you're doing these, I'm sorry, I'm on the website. I'm just having a look at the derelict models. When does someone come to you and say, I would like to do this car or do they come to you? I guess it varies and say, I would like to do something. Have you got any ideas? And then you're like, well, I've got these three. Yeah. I mean, my favorite's probably the latter. Um, <laughs> I think my, my hands down favorite, well, that's not fair to say. So just to directly answer your question, the production models are based on things that we know already touch many hearts, right? Yeah. So if, if people are calling and they like an FJ or a Thriftmaster or a Bronco, it's because the boy who got away in high school that grown woman, you know, it, it, it means something to her personal history and she wants it yeah. or the guy used to have one or they could never afford it. Now they can, or in yeah. many cases, they always wanted it, never had it. It sounds shallow, but like they tell their assistant who knows nothing about cars, you know, my birthday is coming or I just got that fat bonus. Go get me one of these. And they'll like show them a Google image and like, People forget, you know, the rosy eyes, glasses of memory, and they'll go source the best example they can find <laughs> of their 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s dream car. Yeah. And quite often after two or three miles, they're like, fuck this. <laughs> you know, like, it's <laughs> yeah, this is awful. it doesn't stop. That Prius who's busy texting in front of me, doesn't care, isn't giving me the birth I need. And like, they're more and more not viable in a modern world. And then they come to us. So we have some people that are typical car hoarder collectors, but quite uniquely to the brand, a lot of times, no, people kind of figure through our brand that it's a new option. Like they tried the martyrdom of a stock classic and it just, it wasn't logical for, for them. And they got rid of it or never engage. And then once they figure out what we do and understand the story, then they're like all in. And the crazy thing yeah. is 45% of our customers at Icon today have two or more. Oh, and wow. We have more clients nice. than I can sit here and list off by name that have five or more, <laughs> which is just nuts. But that's mad. Some people come, you know, the, for example, the 48 um, Buick Super that we did, convertible green one, one of my favorites. His grandfather had one and he remembered mm. as a young, young boy, 
granddad was always on the road as a salesman. When he would come back to town and come over to the house, he'd open that big glorious trunk and out would come gifts for the kids. So it's, it's always either a very personal connection or it's a love of design Mm. And they come to me and say, I have no idea what I want, but what haven't you built that you're interested in? And then <laughs> that can be a really fun process, you know, because we'll drill down, like, text me a picture of your house. Text me a picture of your favorite <laughs> chair. Are you a watch geek? If so, are you like a brand slut or do you like really obscure, weird shit? Like, you know, what drives you uh, yeah. by design? And then that can be super fun, especially when they have no automotive history, either matching it to their taste and aesthetic or to a particular use or region of the world. Uh, it's just super, super fun. That is quite fun. That is a fun idea. I like that. I like the idea of chatting to someone for an hour, multiple hours or whatever, and then basically diagnosing me into a, <laughs> yeah. well, I think you should like this. Like, well, like, I well, think you will sure. like this. And nothing I do fixes <laughs> anything. It makes it all worse, you know, they come back and get another one. But like another fun thing for me that um, is a wonderful learning experience too and, and and that's a big part of the derelicts and reformers because they're a crap business model. They're brutally expensive <laughs> for the consumer, but almost 5% margin net net for us. It went appropriate. I will try to play revisionist historian and put myself in the shoes of my favorite designer of that given era and try to embody him or her and what like with Thriftmaster, Raymond Lowy was killing it post-war. Not much transportation design in, in for him at that time, mainstream. Mm. You know, he did the Coca-Cola logo and he did Lucky Strikes and on and on and on. Prolific, prolific designer. So this was like an economy farm truck. So they wouldn't engage someone like that. But my fun which got me deeper into my knowledge of Lowy as well was, okay, let's pretend Raymond Lowy was on the design team. So what would he do? He wouldn't do a dielectric stamped vinyl on cardboard door panel with a plastic armrest. <laughs> Hell no. You know? So then like the, the armatures, all the tactile interface, the knobs, the switches, the typography for the interior and the exterior and creating a consistent font language for vehicles, just like I do on my watch designs, mm. drives me nuts. Like incredibly high <laughs> and beautiful stuff. But like you even look at like a Patek Philippe watch. There's like five different fonts. Yeah, on what one is that about? Like, what are you doing? Like it makes no sense to me. And it's just a fun way to further my education, do a deep dive and further corrupt my clients. But I love That's that continuity, funny. right? And that end result. Yeah. Like when we use – sun visors that are in military aircraft and MIGs and Lear jets and stuff. Well, that sounds nifty, but if it doesn't cohesively work with the design language in the vehicle, then it's just like a Johnny Cash special of parts and pieces. Um, so that added challenge as a designer to create that cohesion, that, that flow yeah. um, is, is a super fun, super fun experience. Cause I, cause I remember I was watching, yeah, I was watching a video and it was you driving one of your trucks. 
uh, that you, or you'd built for someone. But you had a, I think you'd put some seven series seats in it or something. Yeah, that happens. And I, <laughs> and I was amazed that they fit, like it worked. And they yeah. just looked like they should be there or not. And you're like, oh, but that's and from a BMW. So getting them to actually work, they're coming out of a can contemporary vehicle where the damn seats speaking to the steering column and speaking to the ABS unit and on and on and on. So we literally had to build out and write software and run a small computer to trick those seats to work in an analog environment. Total shit show. But that was actually a, a client request. So that era of Land Cruiser, the seats kind of suck. Mm. The client, uh, I think you're talking about Joe Rogan's FZJ80. We got through I, I think PLC. it was, yeah. Yeah, he's like, one of my all-time favorite seats is the 750IL seats. I'm like, okay. So we just went and got them. And, yeah, it was, it was a lot of work to make those seats work. But, again, that's in the interest of evolving the user experience and improving how versatile and comfortable the vehicle is at the end of the day. And then the challenge was to redesign the rear seat and to use BMW headrests modified into the Toyota frames of the rear seat to make it not look like, oh, look, he put BMW seats in a toilet. Like finding ways to, to, to meld those languages to get them to, to work together. That, oh, I mean, that sounds, <laughs> the end result looks incredibly impressive. And I guess the bit that is probably the most impressive, it doesn't stand out. Yeah. It just looks. It just looks good, and you're you're like, yeah, but we changed that and that and that and that and that and got this from there. And yeah, I think the derelicts are probably the the purest form of a whole lot's got to go down to make it look like we've done nothing. Yeah, you know, and like the that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the electric Merc that we did, which quite sadly was on an airplane heading to the big show in Switzerland right at the beginning of COVID. It made it all the way there and they canceled the show. I was so bummed. Um, (laughs) That really sucked, but it's a 49 Mercury coupe, which is a car made famous um, by James Dean. Um, and it's always been a, a very sought after classic American hot rod, but we built that as a, as a pure electric car. So we had tons of capability and enhancements done, none of which you can see. So like <laughs> e- even, even, uh, even behind the scenes, like the way that Tesla batteries were integrated and such, uh, were absolutely nuts, you know, and, and, and that was good fun. Um, that was critical. And the, um, one thing that we, we love about those derelicts is the art of doing that. Was I able to share my screen? Are you able to see my, yeah, my photo? I can, I can see your screen. Yeah. All right. Sweet. So this will probably be super annoying to those listening <laughs> to the podcast, but like but, but we started the people with, watching in, you can, you can see. Yeah. So basically, we started with a rust-free original paint, 49 Merc, with glorious patina, and it hadn't been Mm. chopped. And that's a very, very popular thing. People modify the piss out of them. But then we re-engineered everything from the floor pans to four-wheel independent suspension 
to Icon Brembo brakes to electric rack and pinion to high voltage air conditioning to thermally managed batteries, controllers, dual electric motors, um, no transmission. So there's no shifts. It's just a freight train and it's just gone. Yeah. So all this technology, but then how do you, how do you do that in a way that doesn't go against the original design language was hmm. so much fun. So like the engine bay, we took inspiration from the popular post-war oh, wow. speed equipment that would have been appropriate at that time. So it kind of looked like an old ABA flathead with like Strombergs and Fenton speed equipment or like an Arden blower, stuff like that, like thinned and knurled and, and it's all machine, but designed to look like it was cast so much fun. And, and, and interestingly too, like that's a great way to keep the older generation that may say, I don't know, electric car. I don't want nothing to do with that. Ruin that old closet. <laughs> They're drawn to it because it still has that visceral hot rod element. So we did that on like so many things that like literally it'll take the client probably 20 years to pull back all the layers of the onion to find all those nuances and, and subtleties. So like, you know, power windows, everyone wants power windows, but I refuse to put those ugly aftermarket plastic backlit crap yeah. switches in. So we have a system that's like a super gnarly, strong cam lock. So it's still, we're able to keep the original 49 window regulator and you just nudge it down for down. You nudge it up. Nice. Up. You double nudge it and all windows go down and double nudge all windows. Oh. Yeah. So it's like, all about finding all those freaks and geeks and subtle things. Like everyone wants a modern stereo. I refuse to put some ugly ass dancing dolphin yeah. modern double din and cut up the dash. So we take the original radio and it's now going through a digital sound processor to focal audio amplifiers and such. But you, your, your human interface is still through the tune and volume knob but through all high-tech gear, that's all hidden. So that, is that cool. backlit original radio still does what it originally did. And even like the speakers are very artfully integrated. And like the, I think it was the package tray speakers, we actually used a vintage new old stock acoustic fabric that looked like the mohair. So you don't even see them. Like they don't interrupt the visual flow of the car, but you've got the performance kick-ass audio. This is so cool. I mean, it's endless. <laughs> like I could geek out forever. Like all the knobs and switches on the dash originally were plastic. And that plastic, it's, it's not really Bakelite, but people think of it as Bakelite. But as it ages and corrodes, what's happening is actually microbes, like a bacteria is growing in it. Oh, really? And it smells like rotten fish. It sucks. <laughs> and the tactile of a metal is just so much better. So we just took inspiration from the original shape. I built out the CAD model and we machined them in stainless. And then all the original dash knobs have like fun function indication plaques, which we also maintained. But like the original gauges are kick-ass gorgeous, but... I can't get all of the support I need for the EV circuits because we're monitoring a tremendous 
you know, amount of circuitry. Um, so what we, what we did there, just again, cause damn, it's fun. Why not? Was we were able to get into a situation where we said, okay, so the original gauges look super cool. Let's reshape the dash, patina paint it to make it look like we didn't reshape it. And now we have a digital touch screen, an Aldrino, that now has the aesthetic of the vintage gauges, yeah. but monitors, controller, battery, motor temperature, range, amps, volts, all the CAN bus support that we need. Um, and then coincidentally, again, the car never had AC, so that allowed us to machine and body color paint two of the four dash AC vents, um, which were inspired by the shape of the original grill. So it's like you didn't own a 49 Merc. You wouldn't notice 95% of our geekness. Yeah. Like you, you just wouldn't know. And to me, that's, that's where it's at. That's, that's the best. That's so cool. With you, let's say the, the knobs for the, the ones I can see right now, I guess the AC vents and stuff yeah. like that. Do you, do you scan those and then do you scan I mean, them into CAD I or do could, you just design them in CAD? The reality is, is if I need a high, high quality scan, I sublet that and a goober from the aerospace industry will come over here and he'll scan it. And I have a huge mesh file that then needs to be converted to true surface data Eh. So if it's something simple like a knob, no, I'll sit here with a nice micrometer. Yeah. You know, a couple photos. I'll put those into my CAD program and then I'll just model it. Literally, I'll take a picture from above and of the profile, scale it in my model as a layer and then build up from there. Oh, uh, okay. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's super easy. We do a lot of complex scanning but generally for far more uh, technical. Yeah. I guess things like, I don't know, dashes and whatever. Full chassis redesigns, wheel redesigns, complex grill and bright work. Uh, like we're doing a 41 Cadillac. This is gorgeous, you know, of the period appropriate center um, speaker grill. Basically all it is, it's like an ash drain of speaker. It takes up like, a quarter of the entire large dash, but it's gorgeous. So very intricate and all these different tiers and steps to it. So that's an example of something we will scan to get into CAD and then evolve and manipulate. So it has the, you tap it in it on gas shocks and it drops (laughs) for your nav screen or like that car is for a client in Costa Rica. So we thought, we need to design intakes and vents on the rear package tray for the rear AC. So we took that scan, rotate, manipulate, chop, scale. So now visually, if you're driving the car, that center dash is where it was stock. But in that same sight line, those elements are integrated on the LSA intercooler top deck in the engine bay. And if you look over your shoulder on the rear package tray, for the rear AC intake vent. Yeah, it's so much fun. And then, like, you can see I have just all sorts of old shit all over my office. <laughs> but, like, I had a 37 model year, I think it was, um, side hood vent 
from another division of Cadillac at the time called LaSalle that was like their lower price. And it's this kick-ass design. So when I started noodling on what are we going to do, what are we going to do for the rear AC vent, we went for that. So we now they're like little periscopes. So they're going to be all machined and gorgeous and patina painted, but then they articulate to route the rear AC. Nice. I, I don't understand how you do all of this stuff across so many different cars, projects and stuff, because other, other people doing a similar sort of thing will just pick like one car. Yeah. It's because like, they're smarter like than me. E-type or whatever. <laughs> It'd be a much better <laughs> business model. Um, I, I think it's um, if if I had grown up in my son's generation, um, my sons are 19 and 22, I think they would have slapped me with a couple anacronyms, given me some drugs and forced me to fit into some social <laughs> silo. My upbringing was quite unique and I got to travel the world. I was honored for my creative instincts. They were embraced and enabled. And thank goodness for that, because, I mean, it's probably at root, just good old-fashioned OCD or something. Yeah. But I think people are, I I think you're either born constantly observant and open-minded, or you're not. And I tell you, if I did just one vehicle, I'd be bored. If I get bored, I lose my yeah. passion. If I lose my passion, I lose my drive. I think I think that's super important because you clearly are inspired by all sorts of things. You've got all sorts of side projects, whatever that you want to do. And that's why the end result for each project turns out how it does. If, if you're not interested in all the other stuff and constantly like, oh, what's next? And what you, you're not going to end up with the same result. Yeah, certainly. And I, and I think in equal parts, it's not only having that natural inclination, but it's being embraced, even if it's by someone in a parking lot with a deep appreciation for what I'm doing, who would never pay for it. Mm. Obviously, I need customers who can cut the checks to enable me. But I think with any creative, art is an opinion, and at its purest form, it's the opinion of the creator, meaning if it makes you laugh, if it makes you cry, if it makes you wistful or nostalgic, that should at root, at its purest form, be what the artist's emotion was when he envisioned creating it. I think when you go to a gallery and you go, I don't understand modernism or I don't understand impressionism or whatever. I think that's a very narrow judgment and it's okay not to understand it and move on, but it's purest form. It's what it does for the creator and what it does for the creator when he sees how it makes other people feel. Mm. That being said, I have to be a capitalist because I'm in a capitalist world. (laughs) I have big responsibilities and overhead here. Um, So I have to balance the two. But, but I've always been hell-bent on definitely leaning towards the creative because if I, if, I, if I don't protect the passions that drive me, then there is no business. Now no. I'm 51, so I'm starting to certainly not negate that bird on my shoulder, but I am listening to the capitalist bird on the opposing shoulder to make sure that like I'm doing things that are sensible, that are scalable, that – repeatable 
And yeah. you know, that's, there's, there's been projects. I mean, I just finished pissing away all three quarters or more of a million bucks in a dream project I wanted to do. I got to the point to realize, yes, we can do it. Then unfortunately I went, but should we? <laughs> and I no, I'm an idiot. I shouldn't. There's a time for it and I might eventually do it, but the business parrot on the opposing shoulder said, no, you tard, you should be electrifying your existing models and adding that to your brand. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be more of a grown up finally <laughs> and, and be more rational with those thoughts. But at the same time, like I'm, I'm insatiable. So I'm starting a leather goods brand. I've been, I've done watch designs. Uh, I released one, um, watch, which was an incredible process and a product. Uh, I love doing that. I've got some furniture in the works, um, designing a house, um, for my wife and I, that's kind of like a derelict home. We're taking oh, an wow. 1850s okay. Dutch canted beam, English style barn. And we salvaged it, fumigated it, denailed it, scanned it, gutted into CAD. And now working with an architect to design it, which I'm quickly realizing it is not as much fun to be on the receiving end as meaning the guy who has to pay for the stupid shit I think of. Yeah, yeah. I'm usually not that guy. And I'm quickly realizing <laughs> I might not be able to afford my own taste, <laughs> uh, but it's so much fun. I mean, to me, all, all of these art forms and like sometimes on Instagram, my followers would be like, Oh, finally a car post. I was starting <laughs> to think this was like, a Barney's poster, what you know, luxury brand, like piss off. Design is design, art is art. Like it's my journey. It's not some brand with a media company with just tits and trucks. In fact, yeah, I've never. And it's your social movies. media. Yeah, it's mine. <laughs> it's it's, social, it's, you post the brand you like. is very personal, and therefore, so is it. The doing the watch that must have been a really interesting process digging into what like deep into actually making a watch as well like quite how how deep did you go <laughs> oh i went very very deep um so again in in sync with being a lover of vintage um certainly watches were uh something i was drawn to both mm. for the mechanical complexity as well as the, uh, the beauty and the design language. So I found myself with an idea for a watch many, many years ago. And it started, I was in a, I was at a car collection. Um, I mean, this goes way back. I mean, I think before I was even professionally building cars. And I, I had a chance to spend some intimate time with a um, Duesenberg SJ. And I was like, dang, that's cool. And I loved the speedometer and the tachometer. Now, what's interesting <clears throat> is it's what's called a drum style. So if you picture that there is a, a drum sort of disc that is perpendicular to your sight line that is rotating as your speed increases. Now, the issue with it is it turned out to be highly unreliable. 
And it's quite rare these days because even back in the day, Stuart Warner Gauge Company offered a replacement. But you can't argue with the sheer beauty, right? Look at the, that yeah. tachometer and the speedo. So I'd always been a fan of what are called jump hour watches. So it's like, oh, that would make a really cool watch. So again, around that time, I had done some. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Speaking um, for a big company in the CAD world called Autodesk, and like mm-hmm. I have proper engineers here. Um, I'm okay in CAD, but far from competent. My guys rock it way better than I could ever play catch up with. But the idea was Autodesk and our relationship had grown and they reached out and they said, you know, what about you with CAD? I'm like, yeah, I kind of suck. Like I can like crudely illustrate basic concepts. Like, well, look, you know, we have this new platform we're launching. And if, if you want to dive into it, um, thank you for all your support. Like, we'll send you an engineer to come train you. So I was oh, like, brilliant. oh, okay. <laughs> so being the sucker for an opportunity that I am, I said, yeah, let's do that. So the guy shows up and he's super cool. His name's Curtis Chan. And Curtis is like, so here's the deal. I'm here for, I think it was five hours a week for as long as you want me. Really? Okay. It's like, so what should we do? Uh, Motor mounts, grill, et cetera. Again, had been keeping me up at night was my brain going to sleep CAD virtual model of this concept watch that I'd had for over 10 years. And I was like, you know what? I got guys already rocking that. Let's do this. So we ran over to Jay Leno's collection um, because he's got a stack of doozies so Mm. that I I could get more uh, imagery and and more detail understanding down to the knockoff hubs and the early badges and gauges and typography. And that platform is what I used um, to understand and learn Fusion 360. And in the end, I had a balls out, virtually production ready file to produce the watch and the unnecessarily groovy box. So uh, <laughs> had already been to to Basel in Switzerland, one of the, the bigger watch geek shows. Um, went again, stayed a little longer, met with several suppliers, found the perfect team. All along thinking, ah, this will be easy. It's not like a car. You know, this will be simple. So I talked my wife and my COO into letting me dive into this concept just to learn dealing with the Swiss 
it ain't easy. I imagine if you ordered a Domino's pizza in Switzerland, they would figure <laughs> out how to complicate it. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a massive time suck. It took forever. Um, partially my fault because I didn't want anything off the shelf other than the movement, um, which has a Dupuis Dupra complication on it, but it's like a Chevy small block robust Swiss movement that can be serviced anywhere. But like the crown design, the case design, the lugs, even the concept of the crystal and the double AR code on the crystal so that the badging at most angles, you don't even see any branding. The light has to hit it just right for you to realize the crystal has been laser etched on the B side and it just captures the light at certain angles you see the branding and the shadow of that branding upon the dot um, and cool. on and on and on and on. But yeah, it was, it was super, super fun. I got a stack of new ones I want to do. Um, but again, as I said, my wife is my business partner. I still have, <laughs> I only have four of them left. She won't let me. They're here. Any, any me. listeners want to watch, hit them up. Yeah, she, she won't let me do it in, until they're all gone because she's so responsible. All responsible, responsible. Let's have just, some just fun. include them like with a car. Yeah, it'd be kind of an expensive throw, and I think that's yeah. the problem. She'd probably shoot me down. It. I mean, I love the idea, but yeah, like I want to do one that's like based on the crazy Italian supercars coming at like the Torino shows in the '60s. Another one that's like time only deco syringe. Um, another one, I love Disco Volantes, which was a trend yeah. that started post-war, but really came to life more in the 60s. So again, revisionist history. What if we took the playful finishes and materials and color languages from mid-century? What if those had been applied to watches 20 years earlier? Like, what would that look like? Except, like, nice. I won't do smartwatches because I still love that visceral, mechanical I mean, let's face it, our phone does everything we need it to do. Yeah. Just like your Tesla or your Uber account does everything you need it to do. So I look for like a deeper soul connect. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the, the watch haters watch at the moment. Uh, yes. But only because during pandemic situation, if you're wearing a mask, it unlocks your phone. Oh, okay. That's so you don't need to put in your code. Or you know, whatever. just to be Which- clear, you could simply have reprogrammed your iPhone to scan your face with your mask on. Oh, just saying, and you, could <laughs> still, you could have stayed connected to the long British heritage <laughs> of clock and watch making, sir. I love England. I, I wish I had more time to spend there. When I, the first time I went there was on a Eurorail trip when I was 17. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I was like like on the cover of like Teeny Bopper American magazines and stuff. But like overseas, I don't think any of my shows, I don't think they were distributing at that time, right? Yeah. So like I could just pack up a backpack, get a Eurorail pass, hit the road with a buddy and have the privacy and have all these great experiences. But I remember clearly, first time I went to London, the weather was shit. And everyone was so rude. Now I understand why, because <laughs> I was like a stinky, seemingly broke little Eurorail brat. 
you know, just another obnoxious American. So piss off. But I've gone <laughs> back now um, four times, uh, most recently, uh, right before COVID, about two and a half years ago. Hmm. And just love it there and, and have a network of uh, of friends and artists over there that I love to visit. I think it's there's something about it, the way all of the industries like let's say the motorsport industry or well, you can be in the sort of middle of the UK and you, everyone is near each other. Great. Or like, suddenly like you're at a pub and you smell a tannery, right? <laughs> you're like, what? wait a minute, you know? And also I, I personally think, okay, globally we are blessed that I'm seeing a renaissance in give a damn from consumers. Right. Yeah. So, I think there is starting, especially in first world cultures, there's pushback now to the big box solution. So, you know, again, the commoditization of the planet and the dumb it down, make the shittiest thing you can. That's still something people will tolerate and buy. Like people are burned out of buying that big box target or whatever backpack. Yeah, it was 22 bucks, but it fell apart in two months. Yeah. So I think – there's this renaissance of craftsmen aided by, as you said, modern media resources to reach the audience. I think there's a movement at hand with consumers to, I'm not going to go back to that big box store and buy that backpack. I'm going to do some homework. I'm going to find a guy who's a girl or team or whatever, who's putting their heart and soul into making a damn backpack. And it, it has integrity in its creation. It's going to yeah. last. It's going to work out. And yeah, they may spend a multiple of what they would for the disposable. But I think both from a conscious ecological perspective and pride of ownership and sense of design, like it's, it's beautiful to see that renaissance. And that was a long tangent paragraph. My point <laughs> being, I always have felt that England was on the cutting edge culturally of respecting their own heritage and going to lengths to keep those traditional arts viable in the modern world. And I think mm. my country, on the other hand, shame, well, don't get me started in the current news of what's happening in the world, the many ways I am currently wanting to apologize for my nation. Uh, I feel the same about Britain. <laughs> yeah. You guys got a couple, you got a couple going against you too. Let's face it. I guess we all do. But, you know, like the textile industry right now and the funding that's coming into that for, for training for startups, you know, it's just brilliant to see that happening. Yeah. I, I, that thing you said about, you know, just sort of valuing craftsmanship and stuff like that. I always remember as, as like a little kid, my grandfather, he used to work in the textiles industry in testing. So he had a company that tested materials and whatever. And, he he always said to me like buy quality don't buy like design well you know design yes but not just like a badge and a label and all that sort of stuff and as a young person you're like yeah whatever i want my nike t-shirt or what you know all that sort of stuff and then it's come it's come full circle i'm now looking at things and go i would rather buy one thing and it lasts a long time whether it's a nice coat or a watch or whatever literally i'm now looking around my desk and i'm like anything that i touch like i've got a pen knife here that's actually really nicely made and all that sort of stuff and you go well 
if I spend, might spend a little bit more to start with, but I get a lot out of it every day and it works. It's repairable. It's like lasts forever. And it's just, you just get so much more out of that totally. rather than totally. a you toaster know, that needs to be thrown away. I am, next time I'm in London, they're on my list. They're already marked on my Google map to go visit, but I've been kind of uh, lurking around and, and stalking a brand called Private White based in London. Not British manufacturer, them. men's apparel, just gorgeous stuff. And they really seem to give a damn. Like everything's made there and they're transparent about all their sourcing and such. And it's it seems to embody the, the spirit that we speak to. And I, and I think the fact that younger generations, like even teenagers now, I see that, that consciousness as a consumer being a part of their perspective. And frankly, I think it's our only hope. I mean, we've had dumbass presidents here that say, you know, like in 06, 07, when the economy was crumbling, president literally like stood up and said, Oh, you know, go to the store and buy something. We'll be fine. And like support the economy. <laughs> it's like, okay, first of all, like the diesel fuel and, you know, hydrocarbon footprint of that product made in a place that doesn't respect the labor. That's not sustainable. That's going to get burned out and thrown away. And they'll go to another dragon country and burn them out. Like that's not going to do it. What about supporting something domestically made? What about respect for craftsmen? What about respect for trade? Like in, in our country, like I hate to say it. I mean, honestly, it wouldn't happen in my social circles because my friends are wildly diverse as far as what they do or what their sexual orientation. I don't give a shit. I just love the right people, right? But mm. I think in mass, if you met someone at an event and so what do you do, which the older I get, the more I don't even want to have that conversation. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, you know, someone says they're a plumber uh, or they're a framer. I think it's it's – a safe and fair and unfortunate assumption to say that a lot of people would like, eh, okay, like I'm not interested. Yeah. Yeah. And that's bullshit. You know, it's what built these built both of our countries. And I, I think getting back to risk decriminalizing blue collar is the way I phrase it is going to be so critical and not just for our nations, but for nations like that are, you know, trying to pave their own path and, and find their identity. And yeah, I don't know what happened I, with that. I don't know why that went the way it has gone culturally, almost it's, globally. It's complicated. I, I think it's 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 tricky. And I, I read a book recently about making things with your hands and the the benefits we get from it. And our Is society. Is that the book? The guy who, I, who went and built the boat with his grandfather's tools. Hi, oh, I, I'm not sure. Oh, I, okay. I don't think so. Different one, maybe. Um, but the. The thing that that looked at was sort of today, everyone, even just like academia, everything pushes people towards like, you know, finance jobs or those sorts of things. And it does. Everyone looks down on these traditional sort of artisan jobs. And and the model is broken. That's the thing that I really don't get that like fights the logic or implied logic of encouraging you to go be, go work for the man or be a doctor or be a lawyer or whatever. (laughs) Like my dad was an attorney and he's still alive. He's retired. But towards the end of his career, he had kids coming out of like that 
top schools and the top 10% of their class, they're like running his copier and running errands. Yeah. Watson, IBM Watson today in general law, there's a very interesting study done recently is more is like 90. I, I don't want to even claim to say, to say, I remember the exact statistics, but it was something like accurate on general law answers. 97% of the time versus law student graduates were accurate. Like 70% of the time. So suddenly this is, this is AI is really going to force this issue as well. Just because you get a law degree and, you know, amass hundreds of thousands of pounds in debt, right? Doesn't mean you're going to get a stable job. And working for the man don't mean stable. And that's been proven again and again and again. And like craftsmen and niches and like I have plenty of icon clients that are framers, construction guys. I have a couple plumbers. So, you know, we're just idiots to – think we need to put people in silos and part of me thinks it was the revenue, the evolution of revenue models of education. The second education became about making money off of students more than it was about educating students in, in many cultures. I think uh, the Nordic cultures have, have done much better job at protecting the, art of education for the sake of improving people's lives and teaching them skills and knowledge, then it has become about making money off of suckers. Yeah. It's, I was amazed sort of looking back at thinking about it now, like when I was, when I went to uni and I studied mechanical engineering for a bit and then left and went and did some other stuff. Um, but at that point in time, the whole, a load of people were going to uni to just get, a degree. They, they wanted to get a degree. No, it wasn't they just, anything all they specific. Piss drunk and do good enough to get a degree to march on on the system. But it it wasn't applied in any way. It didn't project to. Oh, I'd like to do this in the future. It was just like get the tick box and therefore I can get a job yeah, in the nice. industry, which just doesn't really make sense at all, does it? Yeah, I think it's Norway that had the best system I've heard, which I believe it was tenth grade starts to inform students about the range of careers and arts and opportunities in the world and emerging mm. and traditional all of them. By 11th grade, you start to focus in on hopefully the interest you found in 10th grade due to that education. And you can even do in-depth internship or apprenticeships. And then your final year of school is helping you understand how to pave that road and the business aspects of responsibly following your passion versus like you said, you know, here kids just go off to college if they do, if they can afford to, because it's what they think they should do. And so few have really identified their, their passions. Yeah. One of my and kids it, went to Otis and studied um, product design. So I, I'm blessed that he is blessed to have found something he loves and go mm. for it. And then my other one's a major mechanical geek. I think they're probably secretly plotting on an overthrow. Because <laughs> if we have yeah. a product designer and a proper mechanical engineer, uh, they're, they're going to pull a, some Roman 
story on me. <laughs> but they might not have the weird and wacky ideas and all of these other things that you've picked up. One of them's up. quite the stoner, so he might come up with some wacky ideas. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but sort of coming full circle to this book of like working with your hands, it was they were looking at the level of satisfaction and sort of like intellectual, I don't know, braininess that you need to fix stuff, work with stuff, design things, you know, whether, whether it's doing plumbing or crafting X, Y, and Z, and you're problem solving all stuff all day long. And the sort of job satisfaction of people that have jobs like that was really, is really, really high because they're mentally stimulated in a way that, is totally different to just sitting at a computer, clicking buttons and stuff like using your, there's something about using your hands and solving problems and making things and that, that really connects with us as humans. Whereas we're not actually des- sort of designed to sit at a computer and run numbers and whatever. Like it, there's something innately in there about working with your hands. Yeah. You know, and um, a neuro, not a neurologist, I think it was a neuroscientist, um, I'm, I'm considered epileptic. I have partial complex seizures and it took mm-hmm. decades for them to diagnose it. Frankly, I don't think they've diagnosed it so much that they put it in a happy little box with yeah. a label on it. Right. But during that experience, um, a neuroscientist that I was working with, uh, who was also an avid woodworker in like Japanese joinery, like Amazing. Amazing stuff, yeah. And he identified it. He said, no, no, no. All it is, it's, it's incredibly caveman, stupid, simple. It's the, the art of creation, of using your hands, is the purest integration of left and right brain function. Those people that are cubicle dwellers or are doing just one-track things where only one is empowered or the other, there is a neurologic disadvantage in that disconnect. So I say, mm. even if, look, that cubicle uh, provides a stable life and healthcare and keeps the family healthy and you got to do it, fine, do it, but don't let it kill your soul. Get tinkering. All you need yeah. is counter space somewhere. I've taken over our, our breakfast nook to my wife's chagrin <laughs> uh, and one of my kids' bedrooms when he went off to school, soon my other son's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> But with my craft studio stuff, because even for me, I noticed as Icon grew and grew and grew, my responsibilities shifted. So I used to be panel beating and welding and doing mechanical work and mm. machining and like all that myself. But as the company grew, I was doing a disservice because not only did I amass an incredibly skilled team here that are better at it than I ever was anyway, but I got to be pilot in this ship. I got to be whatever, doing a podcast or yeah. talking about and working on developing future product or communicating with clients or media, whatever. And I missed, I found mentally I was, I was, I don't know, say debilitated, but like I, I was missing that connection. So yeah. that's when I started to dive in deeper into my interest in leathercraft and then mm. started studying from different masters in that. And then thank goodness for that. Cause man, during COVID I'm not going anywhere. My wife is fighting breast cancer. So she was dealing with chemotherapy oh, in the middle of COVID. So we were like hunkered down hardcore. So if I had not had something to 
apply myself to um, and get that sense of concept creation completion, you know, getting those dopamine spurts. Um, yeah. I would have been a miserable bastard for sure. Oh, it sounds, yeah, it is. We all need it. Yeah. And whether you know it or not, like I, I, I always used to just build, like, I used to build little models and like paint them and stuff like that. And I've always done stuff, whether it's like, you know, build various things. And, but I, I think the thing I've realized recently is I love the learning part of it. I love learning new skills or learning once you how feel to do like new stuff. you got it, then you move on to learn another one or do you stick to it? I need to remember that I love learning. So sometimes I stick, I stick with stuff, yeah, like whether it's photography or all that sort of stuff. And I keep evolving, but the first, the first, whatever it is, year, two years, three years of, of learning something new, you learn so much and you might get to 80% of where it's, what's available. And then the last 20 year, 20%, 10%, 5% might take 50 years. Hmm. I agree. And I also, I have learned over the years as I've done these various deep dives into whatever craft, um, I'll get kind of obsessive about a particular one and put away my tools from another craft for a while. Mm. But um, I think people don't often realize that it's one thing to learn how to sing. It's an entirely different, incredible journey to find your voice. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, like, for the first three or four years of learning the art form of traditional leather craft was one experience. Once I got to the kind of sort of master level, only evidenced by the condition of my brutalized hands, <laughs> um, did I really then be able to go, okay, all right, I got this. So now how do I – just like my, you know, started restoring cars stock and the way people have always done them. And then after a while, you start to rethink and question and find your own language. And and I'd almost say both are equally in, enticing journeys. And from the little study I've done in Japan, I think the Japanese are the masters at the depth of understanding how long it takes to truly master something and, and the most critical lesson I learned from a, a brilliant master uh, woodworker there was if you're not engaging all your senses, you're not creative. Like, so it's literally with leather craft, it can be the smell of the hide, the temper of it in your hand before you touch it, um, the way it burnishes, the way it tools, the way it marks, same as sculpture. What are the dynamics of that type of rock? More importantly, I've, I've let chunks of rock sit in my backyard for years before the rock tells me what shape is hiding within. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I find that, I mean, that's endless. That's a journey that, that that's never ends. So it's super fascinating. Is, I just wish what, I was rich enough to just fuck off and travel the world <laughs> and train with masters. And I've been offered a couple that are pretty damn tempting. Yeah. Um, like literally go live in a village in Northern Japan for six months, live in the loft and start from scratch. And 
deep dive that shit. I just love it. Yeah. That would be so cool. You are, you're absolutely spot on about the whole, like learning to sing, finding your voice. Cause I've got a few things that I've done for a long time. Like, okay. So photography, uh, play the guitar, that sort of thing. And you spend an awful long time, the first bit learning like photography, I think is, is, is a good one for this. You learn how to take pictures and use a camera. Step one. Step two is what the hell do you do with that camera? And that, that part of it takes f- forever and it constantly evolving and you're picking up different ideas and doing what, but you, I always say to people that are sort of, you, you get this attitude in photography that some people go like, Oh, I'm a natural light photographer. I only shoot with natural light. And I'm like, well, okay. What if the light's crap and you need some, you need to bring in some artificial lights like the one I've got up here. Like you Let need to know Photoshop how to, and bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you need to know how to do all the stuff. You need as much background and knowledge so that you can basically ignore it. Like time, you need to learn all the rules and then work out what you're going to do. Time and money dictate that we must pick our battles, right? So like exactly. I resist some physical unnecessary objects that I appreciate because I'm not a wealthy enough man to go down the deep dive that that would like <laughs> come knowing me. Yeah. The other one is time management, right? So like photography is a great example. I like to think I'm naturally good at composition and framing and yada, yada, yada. I shoot 90% of my own stuff. So probably 90% of the imagery no, 70% of the imagery on my website, I shot it. Why? Because mm-hmm. I didn't have enough money to hire a pro. But I have gotten to the point that, like, my camera gear is much smarter than me, and I barely am competent on putting it to manual and then just <laughs> flicking shit until the preview image looks closer <laughs> to what I envisioned. But I had to check myself and go, no, 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 okay, 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 okay. Pick your battles, hire a photographer. Hire that <laughs> guy. And like, same thing with business skills. For many years, my wife and I tried to run the circus and wear all the hats. Mm. And I think past a point, you're doing yourself or your organization a disservice. Because let's face it, you, you're gonna naturally, you're a human, you're gonna suck at a number of the tasks required to run something correctly. So yeah. that led me to... Uh, being a great believer in master alliance, um, which I think is a natural instinct, but like a Napoleon Hill business theory of like surround yourself, build a team of people with other perspectives and expertises and pick your battle. Like I only wear five of the 20 hats I used to wear here, (laughs) but I'm a happier human and probably the organization certainly is a hell of a lot better off now that I'm not doing spreadsheets and billing, I screwed that shit up all the time. If I was running the finances, shit, we'd be bankrupt a long time ago. So I think it's it's important to, that you got to pick your battles. But I do encourage yeah. people to like do deep dives, man. Go for it. And don't bitch about money. Pick up a pocket knife and start whittling a scrap of wood. I mean, it's it doesn't have to be an expensive endeavor. It can be a thrift store old Nikon, you know, whatever. So many things to do and it's, it's food for the soul. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm not very good at offloading tasks on other people, but every time I do it, 
And sometimes you might have someone around you that's like, well, you could probably just learn to do that better. And and you realize I've only got a certain amount of energy that I can funnel towards a certain thing. And if I'm massively enthusiastic about it, I'll do that incredibly well. And there are people that are massively enthusiastic about things that I couldn't care less about. And like, I know they're important, but I just don't care. Yeah. So if I can get them to do it, it's going to be much better. I think the third risk of that is if you've, been in business right and dealing with employees and humans in general for long enough and you say like my wife suffers from this she's our cfo she went through the effort initially thinking well i'm going to spend all the time teaching so and so how to do all that like it's easier for me to just do it myself and i I went through the long psychotherapy of subtle nudges to get her (laughs) to realize no like you need to go through that to free you up to do other things or to focus in on the things you enjoy or are better at doing. Did that. Then that person quits, screws us, <laughs> steals money. And then she's like, super captive. I'm never going to do anyone again. You know? So it's a, it's, it's a balance. It's a challenge. Like the embitterment yeah. of being in business. I think you have to be careful to, to not make that so you put up too many barriers that are really going to get get in your own way in the long run. Mm, yeah. but we, we've had a hard time with that with engineers over the years. My engineers over the years have been robbed by mostly JPL, you know, aerospace companies. Again yeah. And again, <sighs> and again, the way they organize the file, the platforms they use, how they name their files, how they mark revisions. Next guy comes in. He's got a different way of doing it. Engineers being engineers. He doesn't trust the previous guy's files. And like past the point, I was like, okay, I give up. No more engineers. Fortunately, <laughs> we, we, we lack that luxury. And we, we do have the luxury. We found a lovely young mechanical engineer who's been killing it. Um, and an electrical engineer. So um, hopefully, you know, people go and do other How do you things get them to stay? Off. But hopefully they stay because, man, that's, that, that's so damn frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. It's... But then people have their own journey and they well, do yeah, their things totally and whatnot. Respect, but I'd rather yeah, keep stay. them captive. <laughs> I'd rather yeah, yeah, like we do cool stuff. <laughs> man, it's trying, sure, to hire, this is cool. trying to hire right now. The skill sets we require, we're not running a production line. I mean, there's serious skill sets and within one Mm. individual, a diverse set of skill sets required. And we do training and certification here, but I can't have someone coming in without any skills. It is so hard to hire right now. It's insane. Like demand is higher than ever. Supply chain is a shit show and no one wants a job right now in this country. It's nuts. So do you get many people just ringing up and saying, Hey, I just want to be involved in the company. No. In some way. Traditionally, yes. We've had several hires, in fact, who were like, we've had guys who were working on film crews here who pulled me aside or came back and said, listen, like, I make really good money doing that, but it is so unreliable and inconsistent or boring or I've always tinkered in my garage. I restored my own motorcycle and car and restored my house. And this speaks to me, can, can I do this? And they come. But then counterpoint, like we also have lost several of those people to municipal jobs.
They'll go work for the Department of Water and Power or Parks and Recreations because they'll get good money, they'll get a pension, and they basically just have to stamp the clock. They don't have to give a shit. So I think it's, we have a really good culture here. I have employees that have been with me over 20 years, but it's, it's probably the biggest challenge for us. That in California wants all businesses to leave and just send their tax money in from somewhere else. So California <laughs> is really a crap business environment. And the skill sets that we are trying to preserve and promote are getting quite difficult to find and scale. Yeah, I I can't remember. I was watching a video recently of it's a guy called Harry Metcalf. I don't know if you've come across him. He's, he used to own Evo magazine in the UK, and um, he has a, a YouTube channel called Harry's Garage. Anyway, he was one of his cars. What is it? Lancia Fulvia Zagato or something was being restored at the moment, and they essentially stripped off all of the filler. And it was just a shit show underneath. Like panels overlapped and not cut off and all sorts of weird stuff. But the the guy, there's, there's this guy that's working in this shop that has just transformed all this just absolute nightmare through just, you know, getting a hammer out, tapping stuff, rolling things, sizing stuff up, cutting it, what out. It's so impressive. But I don't see anyone, I'm sure there must be people, young people going down that path because it just seems like such an old school thing but we need it it's there but it is the vast minority mm. unfortunately yeah and i've been that guy oh man i try and buy only original paint vehicles because it's so hard often to see what you're getting once i yeah. actually we had a it was quite a special car we sent it out for media blasting. So, you know, we build a, isolate the body to just this shell, build a, like a big chicken spat rotisserie for it. It goes out, uh, crushed walnuts are favorite medium because it doesn't okay. generate as much heat as sand or silica when it touches the metal. So you don't get warpage and distortion. Mm -hmm. When that car came back, we we're screwed. There was nothing to work with. I mean, it would have been rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic that that shit's that boat sink it no matter what you do. Yeah. Like it was so far gone. Yeah. So it's always a sphincter retraction moment for any restorer. When that car comes back from media, you're always like, <laughs> what do we have to work with? <laughs> or the standards of the original craftsman or brand, right, yeah. which varies great. Like taking apart an early Rolls Royce, You'd be appalled. <laughs> like what they what were they thinking? Like they weren't. Or material issues. You know, a, a chassis on an early uh like a series one, series two, or even the series three uh ghosts or clouds. They're multiple layers of sheet metal gauge oh. <laughs> on top of each other with a welded seam. Nice. But you start to dive in, they couldn't get the heavier gauge because of material shortages during a war or a trade war or whatever it might have been. So, again, going back to all the lessons learned and all the history uncovered, it's very interesting as you start diving in 
to those details and experiencing and dealing with them, but understanding how or why that happened in the first place. Like, yeah. you know, we restore these old Ford Broncos. Someone at Ford, I was bitching and moaning about the quality of the bodies when you tear them apart and trying to get things to line up and blah, 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 blah. And he showed me an original production line manual. The tolerance of acceptable body gaps at the time, half an inch. <laughs> half an inch? Are you kidding me? Crazy. So, you know, yeah. and then you, compl- you think that's bad. Then you take apart a vehicle from a singular smaller manufacturer without the connections and money that Ford had at that particular time. And then you're like, oh, yeah, gave me that Bronco pack. Like, this international <laughs> scout, like, what were they? I mean, it's basically like street signs stapled together, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, it's mad. I, I am definitely one of those people that I can appreciate a, a pristine original that's been kept under a cover for 50 years and go, well, that's quite cool. But I am fully aware that we just do stuff better now. Anyone that's like, oh, you know, these were built better back in the day, other than... Um, but we gave more <laughs> shits back in the day, too. The, yes, yeah, so there the, is a The economics a of learning to do things better today, that's an opportunity because so many things are done for the P&L of the shareholder group or traded company yeah. or whoever, right? Not for sake of the best product. That That's the corruption. But again, that's also... The opportunity, right? Like you look at, I I look like at highly commoditized modern consumer goods. Man, I see opportunities left and right. Because like, okay, that industry has been making that as cheap as possible, as scalable as possible for so long that it's soulless and it sucks now and people are still using it. But like, could you not go back to of elevating it in its execution? Like I have one stupid idea. I'd love these like chopsticks traditionally in many cultures were a presentation item. They were a way of communicating your wealth. Right. So okay, yeah. now they're all crap. Like what if there was a line of give a shit chopsticks, you know, that could be everything from, entry-level, unique, anime, branding, licensing, through to encrusted, unique metals, machined, cast, sculpted, engraved. Like, yeah, It'd be so cool that such an opportunity to take something that's just been drilled down to the cheapest possible. Let's back up. Let's look at it again. Have you ever, by chance, where are you in England? Uh, I'm, I'm in London. Okay. Have you ever seen this beast roaring around? Uh, no. Oh yeah, this this originally we built this '58 Cloud for uh, a client in Australia, and then he ended up having to move to an Asian country where the car was not legal. Okay. Ended up selling it to a gentleman who splits his time between Scotland and London. So right. I get some of the best social media tags and videos of this guy. I mean cobblestone, four-wheel drift, V8 LS7, side drift roasting in London. You know, it's just brilliant to see. It was so good. That was a fun project. That's cool. 
That is so cool. Right. I've realized we're, we're sort of running on and on and on. And I think we could probably go on for a long, long, long time. Cause you've got just so imagine if we were about. together but, with some like good Kauila single moth. This I really know. get out of control. <laughs> that would be, I am going to do a trip to the States at some point when we're allowed, when we're allowed back in and I'm going to come on hit up all the people I've met on the podcast and we're right we're back chat at you, in person. So whoever gets on whomever's continent first, yes. first the first bottle. So I normally wrap these up with five questions. Okay. Do you, um, I'll, we'll just, we'll just run through them. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Northern Thailand on a absolutely beyond the end of its lifespan, no longer viable, but I didn't know better and had no other choices. Beat to piss old dirt bike. <laughs> um, from basically just outside of Bangkok up to the Golden Triangle with a very large and very heavy um, center of gravity not helping backpacks upon me um, with a crazy Australian buddy of mine. Craziest drive I have yet to do, even though that wasn't your question, but it is severely on my bucket list. Mm. Man, I want to do Paris to Peking rally so bad I can taste it. And like I've mm. read the original memoirs and stuff, like that trip is so intriguing to me. Like, eh, there's other rallies and stuff, but that particular rally got to happen. That would be, I, I think, of all the rallies that exist today, that's still one of those ones that it has a lot of that adventure in it. Totally, because a lot of rallies don't have adventure in it. Well, they do, but you know, you're, you're sort of within the realms of the first world. Yeah. I mean like the car, I mean, it's basically a rich dude's fun trip and I, I'm down with that on somebody else's time. Do not get me wrong. Mili Migli would be on my list as well. If I had money to piss away or a sponsor, um, I'm trying to see if I have the book here. I have a ridiculous library of vintage books and mostly automotive history or personal histories, but yeah, Luigi Count Luigi, I can't remember his last name, <laughs> who's the crazy bastard that started that rally. He only they, – they did it over a drunken dinner bet. And the, 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 if you won the rally, you won a magnum of champagne. Okay? <laughs> like, really? And he talked his buddies into doing it. But the memoirs in that book, which is out of print, but it's available even just on Amazon. I don't think anyone cares, yeah. but it's an incredible read. And the adventures they went through, and they were going through Mongolia, they were going through towns that forget ever seeing a white dude. They'd never seen a motor, not to mention a car. They're just incredible, yeah. incredible experiences. Yeah, and they were doing it. This was not modern times. No, and it, wasn't, it wasn't for anything other than doing it. Yeah. Talk about purity. Like, ah, love it. Yeah, all about the journey. Yep. All right, what else you got? Right. Next question. Five car garage. Unlimited value. Gosh, that's hard. I mean, like when people ask me like, what's your favorite car? It's like, could you give me a year in a country <laughs> of origin? Okay. Um, the round door rolls. Oh, look at this. It's completely bad shit. I've never come across that. That is amazing. So Jean Kier rebodied it for a crazy lady. Um, who lived in upstate New York. Now, it was already an out-of-date Rolls-Royce, and the, this, the lore, uh, my 
I'm very close with the museum that now owns the car. The lure was that she called Rolls and said, I want to rebody it. And they were like, and this was later years, but it was like a 1925 Rolls Royce. And they're like, no, yeah. it's 37. <laughs> you know, we'll rebody it, buy a new one. <laughs> so, and then same thing happened like with Figoni Falashi and all the traditional bespoke houses. So then a, a smaller, lesser known Jonquier um, house ended up getting the commission from what I understand because so no one else cool. would take it. But the car is just the proportions and this streamlined modern aspect and the design language is just so damn cool. It's right up my alley. So I would need to have that. Um, DB5. I'd probably want yep. two. One that I'd have bodied off the original bucks, just a shell. Stop. Give me the shell. Okay. And then I would engineer my own mechanical experience because the stock ones yes. are, are lovely. So precious. It's not really nice or fair to modify <laughs> them, but I'd probably have a stock one just static in the collection. Only if you let that count as one car, if I had my derelict okay. Okay. beat the piss out of a driver and my concourse yep. one. Fine. Oh man. Only five? Uh, yeah. I'd have to have an FJ40. I'd have yeah. to keep my 51 derelict DeSoto wagon. I'm really not a supercar guy. So as much as I'd say a McLaren, something like that, I think just for the engineering focus mm -hmm. and the moment in time it represented – which was a very unique balance of design team and engineers being allowed to focus on sheer functionality and purity of purpose and function with some electronics aids coming in, but not to the extent that they isolated you from the visceral mechanical. I'd have to say a turbo 96, 97, um, 99. Three, because mm. yeah. it, it represents a very odd moment in time. Of you, you still can sling it sideways if you care to, but there's enough aid that it's not like driving a '79 930 turbo, yeah. where you're dead in a week if you drive it hard. <laughs> yeah, and it will start on the key and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Was that five? Was that four? Four, five. I think five. we had. We had the round Austin. door. Yeah, that's five. Sweet. Job done. But okay. I still want a fossil Vega. And I still nah, want a P1800. I, I still want a shooting brake rebodied <laughs> Bentley. I still want uh, many cars. There's lots. <laughs> oh, and yeah, don't forget my launch is Stratos. Oh. My Delta. Oh, lots, lots of cool stuff. Yeah. Right. You, if you can only drive one car for the rest of your life and you, you, well, technically you get two, you get one unlimited value, one car, and then you have like $500 for another car. Oh, rest of my life, only car. Oh, certainly a Prius. Cause it speaks to everything that embodies and <laughs> livens my soul. Um, shit. Would you have a truck? Would you have a sports car? So I used to have a very unique um, 
pickup truck and that was a gift from Mr. Toyota. Nice. Um, unfortunately, I was in a position where I had to sell it years ago. I think I would, truck-wise, I would want that truck back. It was a Brazilian military-intended crew cab version of a Land Cruiser 45 series. Irreplaceable. I, I would... Mm. Kind of like to have that back, yeah. I thought I had a picture yeah. handy, but I don't. <laughs> I love, I love all the things in that one. Right, okay. What do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What do you think is cheaper than it should be? Well, a couple that are at the tip of my tongue are starting to go batshit, but the one I'm still blown away that the world has not acknowledged. Not only how beautiful it is and how unique it is and how good the parts support is, I own one, but also how good in a modern world the drive experience still is, is the Volvo 1800s. So P1800s and the end of the line, the shooting brake, the 1800ES <laughs> made in 73 and 74. They are just gorgeous. They are really cool. And they're lovely to drive. I have, a sh I have the ES wagon. It's about 20 feet that way in my showroom. Fuel injected, independent suspension, disc brakes, overdrive. Like, it gets it done. And it's gorgeous. And they had such a unique language to them. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the P1800, there's, there's a company, it was, it's Volvo's touring car team. Yes, made they, they a just started mod. that branding offshoot. They just did a carbon wide-bodied version with the new Polestar powertrain. Yeah. Yeah. These proportions are wrong, in my humble opinion, but I uh, <laughs> love that they're looking into it and that uh, that team dug it as much as I did. I think it was quite, for me, it was one of those things of like, I didn't know this car existed, let alone that it's been resto mod. And then you're like, oh, that's quite cool. And the earliest ones were actually out. built in England. So the earliest really? version, yeah. I believe some historian is going to tell me if I'm wrong, I'm sure. I think it's 63 and 64. They were actually built by Jensen. Oh. And then Volvo had quality concerns and pulled the contract and did a light redesign. But those earliest versions are the purest example of what was from the designer's mind to the pencil. So the interior mm. layout, the bright work, the trim, the cow horn, um, bumpers and egg crate grill and the gauges for like, as a watch geek example, the uh, Abercrombie uh, tag watches or Hure Abercrombie Hure watches. Yeah. Chronoscopes and stuff. The gauges are like the coolest early sixties chronograph, like bright multiple colors and yeah. dials and layers. They're so cool. Just having a look at them. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Totally different to other stuff. Like parts, ports, great. You can buy them cheap. Great car. Right. Final question. Most interesting car to you at the moment? Can I? Can I? Can I say two? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fine. So there is an autonomous self-driving car concept that two of my friends have been involved in. Mm -hmm. For many, or not many, but for years, called Canoe, that I find fascinating in how they have approached the challenge 
that many car company, conventional car companies have failed to succeed because they're coming at it from constraints and perspectives of tradition. Like there's got to be mm. an engine here. There's got to be the seats here. Right. They need to sit there. They have rethought everything down to what it means to be in it and what you do with your time to what that experience should be like, how you engage with the other people, how that vehicle gets around how it can break convention, how it communicates with non-autonomy. Like it's so interesting as a designer, the way they've engaged and rethought so many aspects of that product that that yeah. fascinates me. I'm just having a look at it now. It's super it's, tricky. It's pretty cool. And, I mean, it's it, really almost cool. they went back to horse and buggy where yeah. you're facing your fellow occupants because that's the natural engagement, right? And on and on and on. It's, it's, it's very, very intriguing. I, I love when we've got new sort of manufacturers, designers coming into a space that kind of haven't really, and electric has allowed this to happen, is they've not just built cars before, but they've come at it and gone, well, I just, they just thrown everything out and gone, well, what do we want to do? And it's, it's in a real turning period of some really different designs, I think. Yeah, I agree. And then, um, as long as they don't then like the automotive world does go to focus groups and the PNL team and water it down. And it. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and that's how you, people don't know it. what they want. <laughs> yeah. Like Henry Ford, great quote. If I built what the people wanted, they wanted a faster horse that didn't shit. Exactly. Exactly. But anyway, um, and then I have a I have an odd soft spot for the series three, Austin Martin Lagonda, oh. absolute disaster of a vehicle, um, mechanically, electronically, hydraulically, <laughs> electrically. But there's something about the design language of that vehicle that has uh, intrigued me since the very first one I saw, which was. I was I was on a, a big TV series at the time, and every third week we had a week off. And on that week off, I was interning at a legendary old Southern Cal hot rod shop. And one day, Evil Knievel rolled in in oh, a wow. black with orange pinstripe Lagonda, and it blew my mind. I have yet to recover. So one <laughs> of these days, um, I'd like to monkey with one of those. I'm just looking at the dash in this thing. It looks like it looks like it's straight out of like an old computer. Yeah, like, which basically was its down. problem because it had like Nixie <laughs> tubes and pioneering shit going down, none of which worked, um, <laughs> and they were an absolute disaster. But uh, there's just that folded paper design language that eventually they called his work. Um, I just think it's magnificent, especially the Series 3 that has kind of the unibrow row of headlights, you know. Yeah. No, and they just have pretty presence. crazy. When they when they <laughs> arrive, they arrive, you know, if, if, <laughs> yeah. usually on a flatbed, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, cool things. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for it's having me. It's been amazing. It's been great. I very much enjoyed chatting. Fun chat. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.